There's a quote from Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, where he says, Endings matter, not just for the person, but perhaps even more for the ones left behind. Endings matter. They matter in books, in podcasts, movies, in lives, which is what Atul Gawande was talking about. And I think we all want to die as well as possible, right? Not alone in a hospital bed with our loved ones on FaceTime, not painfully or scared or anxious, but safe and loved. This is the story of a good death. Ron David Duprez had a good death, and the ending mattered greatly not only to him, but to his daughter Esme. When we talked to Esme, she was 38 weeks pregnant and a few days out from a scheduled C-section. Right. I just, the minute that you said 38 weeks pregnant, I felt like that heaviness. It just, I was like, oh <laughs> man, I can feel ahead there. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> I was like, is it falling out right now? I cannot tell. Now, Esme made it through the entire interview without peeing once. So for that, we all send a round of applause. Esme lives in California, but she grew up in Maine and... Like her dad, she's a proud Mainer. That's what people in Maine call themselves. Learn something new every day. And being a Mainer meant that they did a lot of outdoorsy things. Esme and her dad, they went skiing, they went hiking, they wore L.L. Bean. Ron is independent. He's self-reliant. And it's not like he sits around talking about death with his kids, but Esme knows, even when she's little, what her dad would not want. The only thing I knew was that my dad was not interested in dying in a hospital or a nursing home or an institutional setting like that, hooked up to tubes. He had kind of always said, you know, I'd rather go back in the woods with my Glock and end it there if I have a terminal illness. Ron was a public health epidemiologist who went to Harvard. He was athletic. He ran 18 marathons in his life. 18. Borderline too many. And he was also... Notoriously cheap. There was never an expiration date on food that he didn't ignore. He just didn't believe in expiration dates. Like we're still finding stuff in his house that is just like decades old and in the refrigerator or in the cabinets. At his house, he has like a stackable washer and dryer. And instead of buying the kit that you buy to put the washer on top of the dryer, he just duct taped it. So it's like... Not ideal. I think we're probably going to try to fix that. He saved a ton. Like the amount of tools that he has is unbelievable. I don't even know what most of them are for. I love this. I love this kind of dad energy. Shout out to every dad out there who believes that expiration dates are a suggestion or a scam, including my father in law, Bill Kuhlmeyer, who kept decade old eggnog in the freezer. <laughs> Because, I mean, it was frozen. It was frozen in time. I just love that kind of stuff. So Ron was a lot of things. He was accomplished, intelligent, cheap, very structured and strict, especially when Esme and her brother were growing up. My dad was an incredibly accomplished and fascinating and complicated and fun guy. Um, Growing up, he was definitely a hard ass. It was, you know, really his way or the highway. I mean, it was like that for his whole, for my whole life and his whole life. But Growing up, he was like very strict. And um, I mean, I was afraid of him in a, I think like kind of in a good way. We were driving down the highway 
say, I don't know how old I was, maybe, I don't know, 10 or so. And he got mad for some reason at my brother and he took a CD of my brother's and threw it out the window because he was mad at my brother. And like, that was so horrifying at the time. I was like, you just threw a CD out the window. Like, what are you doing? Like, he must be really angry in order to do that. And I just remember being like, so like in awe and also scared of him in that moment. As Esme grows up, her relationship with her dad changes. He's not a scary, strict guy flinging CDs out of moving cars. He's just a guy. He just was able to kind of probably let his guard down more and be like a fun, I mean, still my dad and still give me guidance and still kind of be an authority in my life, but also be a friend and be somebody I could talk to about, you know, hard things in a way I probably couldn't when I was a kid and come to with, you know, emotional challenges in a way that I probably couldn't as a kid. After six years in New York City, going to grad school and working as a journalist, Esme moved to California. Her dad would spend the winters there, about six hours away from where Esme and her husband lived. He loved skiing with Esme, just like they'd done growing up. He was just as active and athletic as he'd been when she was young. I remember him telling me that he had fallen in the parking lot, and he had, at that point, had begun to have some balance issues. He had a couple of old injuries from sports back in college and high school. He was a big football player and a wrestler and he had long ago, you know, messed up his knee, but still just, he had run 18 marathons and countless miles on it, despite the fact that it was, you know, an injured knee essentially that never got fixed. Um, So the balance issues were concerning for sure, but I didn't really know what to make of them. Ron starts going to doctors to try to figure out what's causing his problems with balance. He even undergoes a knee surgery. I remember him telling me, I got this diagnosis of ALS, but it's bullshit. Like, the doctors don't know what they're talking about. Like, he really dismissed it and downplayed it. And so for a while, I did too, because I was like, okay, my dad is the healthcare expert. If he doesn't think that he has ALS, even though this is what the doctors said he could have, like he doesn't have ALS because I'm going to you know, believe him over some doctors that I don't know. I remember going home one point and taking him to an appointment for a hearing test. You can test for whether you have like an internal balance issue. And I remember like hoping at that moment, and I'm sure he was too, like hoping so much that like his balance was going to be attributed to this test, you know, like, or like this test could reveal there was something wrong with his hearing or the balance issue was attributed to that and it wouldn't be ALS. So he kind of kept pursuing all of these other reasons that could be the cause of his troubles. ALS was never an official diagnosis, but Ron goes to doctor after doctor looking for a different answer, hoping to hear anything but ALS. He's experiencing atrophy and weakness in his right arm, and in March of 2019, Ron gets a neck surgery to try and help that. And Esme gives birth to her first daughter, named Fern. So my husband and I didn't find out the gender of Fern until she came out. And I remember just really secretly hoping that it would be a girl and being really, really excited when it was. Because I knew that my dad would just, you know, would love whatever grandchild I gave him, of course. But 
would be especially, you know, ecstatic to learn that he had a granddaughter. And that's exactly what he was. He thought Fern was hilarious, which she is. He would call her a card, which is like, I don't know if that's a main word or just like an old timey word, but it's like a word to describe like somebody who is silly, which describes my daughter. Her dad came out to visit Esme and Fern when Fern was just two months old to spend time with this little card, this little Mainer. And it became clear to Esme that her dad's condition, whatever it was, was progressing. It was hard for him to hold Fern, to walk across the living room. Her big, athletic dad was starting to look weak and more frail and afraid. Like, he couldn't bend down to pick her up, but I wanted, obviously, him to be able to hold her. And so, initially, he could do that a lot better than in the end. And I grew kind of hesitant to place him in her arms because I could kind of sense that he was worried about dropping her. But I still did it, of course, so they could be together. So, I mean, the first year of my daughter's life coincided with the last year of my dad's life. And she was, like, waking up to the world and... You know, learning how to become a human and learning how to walk. And he was, like, declining and slowly losing the ability to walk. And it was, yeah, it was just, it was really, it was really awful. We're going to take a quick break. We're back. It's March of 2020, and Ron's condition has gotten worse. And he sends his daughter a text message, not a, hey, how's Fern, text message, or a read this funny article kind of text message, a really big, big life or death kind of text message. So he had asked me in March to help him essentially qualify for Maine's Death with Dignity Act. And that was a really new law at the time. It had just gone into effect not even six months before. And it allows terminally ill people to obtain life-ending medications to end their lives and to hasten their deaths, essentially. When she gets this text, when she opens her notifications and scrolls, Esme, her husband, and Fern are in New York City. It's a work trip for Esme. I was not prepared for him to be ready to die at all. It wasn't a total shock, I guess, but it was not something that I was expecting or ready for. Because at that point, like my dad, yes, he was having a lot of physical challenges. But one thing that's like particularly fucked up about ALS is that like your mind is completely intact. Esme was already planning to take baby Fern with her up to Maine to see her dad. But with the reality of the coronavirus pandemic and the reality of her father's health both starting to sink in, her husband joins Esme and Fern on the trip to Maine. The knowledge that her father is already thinking about the end of his life is rattling around in Esme's brain. She doesn't know how long they'll be there. 
just that it's where she needs to be. Ron has been staying with his girlfriend in the Portland, Maine area for the past year as his health deteriorated. After Esme and her family land, they stop by to say hello from a distance before they head up to Ron's place in Deer Isle to quarantine. And I sent him a picture of Fern eating from a can of sardines, (laughs) which we had found in his house, which was probably expired. And I sent him a photo of it. And I said, this is Fern's lunch. And he responded with like a funny emoji and said that she's a Mainer. And I was like, I don't know. I was just so happy about that because I'm a Mainer and he was a Mainer. And my daughter was born in California, but she is also a Mainer by honorary status. And that's very important if you're from Maine. So that made me super happy. And I have screenshotted that text thread I'm going to print it out and I'm going to frame it because I just love it. They quarantine for over three weeks before Esme drives to the Portland area to visit her dad at his girlfriend's house. When I would talk to him on the phone, like he seemed oftentimes like just totally normal and totally his old self and didn't seem sick or, you know, ill at all. And so there was like that disconnect that was really hard to grapple with in my mind. It wasn't until I could physically be with him that I could really recognize and appreciate, like, the physical deterioration and the extent of the physical deterioration that was happening. To qualify for the kind of death he wants, Ron needs to be able to self-administer these drugs, and he has to be within six months of dying. While Esme and her family are in Ron's house eating sardines and quarantining, Ron is making his initial request to qualify for Maine's Death with Dignity Act. The Death with Dignity Act is a piece of public policy. There are rules. There are regulations. Ron is already on hospice care, but he runs into an issue. Because he had been, as I say, in denial for so long about his ALS diagnosis, my dad never pursued like an official diagnosis of ALS because it wasn't news that he wanted to hear, basically. And ALS is this weird disease. Doctors conclude that you have it based on what's called a diagnosis of exclusion. So it's not like you can just take a blood test or like an X-ray or whatever and say you have ALS. You have to just rule everything else out. And then they kind of land on ALS as the diagnosis of last resort kind of thing. So my dad didn't want to pursue all those tests that would have been required to confirm that he had ALS. But in order to qualify for the law, he had to have an official diagnosis. Ron worked in health policy. He knows how things like this work, and it's also deeply frustrating He has a degenerative and unpredictable disease. He's on hospice, and the clock is ticking. But lucky for Ron, his daughter is an investigative reporter. That's when I got involved. So at this point, we're in mid-April when I leave his house in Deer Isle. My husband and I and my daughter drive three hours south in a crazy snowstorm to go see him in the Portland area. And that's when I'm like on the case and I'm, you know, I took leave from work and I've just dedicated myself full time to 
getting him qualified for this law, like doing everything else that needed to be done. And then also helping care for him. And at that point, we knew that, you know, his time was limited. So just trying to spend as much time with him as I possibly can, because I know at that point that even if he doesn't qualify for this law, we're going to have to find a way to hasten his death somehow. Esme is walking her own thin line between trying to advocate for her father and his needs and the reality of the system. So I was pushing for more medical intervention in order to be able to prolong his life as long as I could. And that was what he had no interest in. And that was what I was worried about alienating him about. Like every time I brought up something, like I researched, you know, some clinical trials for new ALS drugs and I would get really excited and be like, dad, I just talked to the chief of neurology at Mass General Hospital. Like they have this clinical trial. I think you're going to qualify. And he was just like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And so that's what I was really worried about alienating him about and just kind of pushing him away further because he just didn't want to go that path. But he did really want to, you know, find a way to, again, avoid this prolonged, awful death that ALS would have meant had he continued living with ALS. And so it was in this space that I found myself in this ridiculous position of trying to brainstorm essentially other ways to hasten his death. Like if he didn't qualify for this law, what else could we do to help him to hasten his death? And so I remember having a conversation with my husband and I was like, maybe we can, you know, carry him into the woods with his gun and just leave him. Maybe we can take his rowboat out to the ocean and push him overboard. I contemplated like, could I smother him with a pillow in his sleep? Like they were just ridiculously awful and absurd options, but I just, I wanted to help him. You know, I wanted to, he'd had enough at that point and he wanted to find a way to go. And I didn't know whether he would qualify or not. I did kind of find myself cataloging these ways to off him, which were just ridiculous. Esme's working on trying to get her dad qualified for this law. And she's also considering her options if he doesn't qualify. What then? Aside from being left in the woods or pushed overboard, he could stop eating and drinking? If he has enough morphine from the hospice nurses, he could overdose? The problem of getting him qualified is constantly on her mind. And her dad's condition continues to worsen and the independence that he values so much, it's slipping away from him. He could talk on the phone and he could watch TV, but he had always hated watching TV. You know, he, by that point, had stopped eating dinner at the dinner table with us. I mean, that was something he had always, like, been super militant about growing up. Like, we must eat together eating this glorious meal that he had just prepared because he was an awesome cook. And he just couldn't do that anymore. And so he sat with a plate in front of the television. And I know that just like must have felt just so defeating. At this point, he could barely walk. He definitely needed a lot of help to walk. And he could still use his arms, but it was clear that the left side was starting to go And he had begun dropping his fork. He would, like, you know, launch a tirade after doing that. Big life moments. And I initial capped those when typing this. 
feels like they should arrive with some kind of ceremony, some kind of fanfare. A wax-sealed envelope delivered by a bird of prey, a parting of the clouds, and a booming voice from the heavens. But really, it's just a call from the pharmacy that Esme has been checking in with day after day. Because to end his life, Ron needs a prescription. It's April 17th, the day before Esme's birthday, and the prescription is ready. I remember driving there by myself, and it was totally fucking surreal to, like, go pick up these drugs that were going to end my dad's life. And it was a mixture of, like, this is crazy, what am I doing? And also, like, immense relief that we had done it, and he could now end his life on his own terms. And, like, this is what he wanted, and we were able to make it happen. It was my birthday. It was a Saturday. My husband and my daughter and I took my dad for a walk in his wheelchair. And again, like, he hated that wheelchair, so he never would go on a walk in his wheelchair with us. But I convinced him, I was like, Dad, it's my birthday. Go on a walk with me in your wheelchair. And so we took him and we were walking and just all of a sudden, he just, like, out of the blue, he was just like, okay, we're going to Deer Isle tomorrow. And that meant that, like, that was where he wanted to die. And... That was what was happening. It was just like a declarative statement. It wasn't a question. That was his way of saying that it was time. And so at that point, you know, I'm like, okay, shit, like, all right, we're going to Deer Isle tomorrow. Like, that's big news. And for my brother was still in California at that point. I was like, right, I'll get on a plane right now. Deer Isle tomorrow. This is happening. It's happening. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're bringing Ron home to Deer Isle to die. We're back. Esme's dad is qualified for Maine's death with dignity law. She's picked up the drugs that will assist her dad in his death, and he's decided that it's time to go, to head to his home in Deer Isle. The drive from Portland, Maine to Deer Isle is about three hours long. And like the call from the pharmacy, this drive is big, their last drive together, and so, so ordinary. They stop at the one gas station where they always stop. Esme takes a few surreptitious photos, and then they arrive at the Deer Isle Bridge that connects Deer Isle to the mainland. It's like this big, imposing, beautiful green bridge that like has two big towers and rises high over this span of the Atlantic Ocean called the Agamogan Reach and would just take pictures of this bridge all the time. I don't know. He just loved it. He just found this bridge so captivating and actually there's a picture of it that's hanging in my daughter's room of the bridge itself so I remember us driving over that bridge and I I took a picture of him when we were driving over that bridge and like his eyes are all welled up with tears and just like breaks me every time I look at it the house on Deer Isle the house that Ron loved and had dreamed of owning for a long time this is where he wants to die It's on five acres of a peninsula. And so if you look out the front windows, you can see the Atlantic Ocean. And then if you walk down the hill, and that's part of my dad's land, you have oceanfront land there. So it's in the middle of, you know, there's just 
pine trees all around. There's ferns all around. There's deer around. I mean, it's just super idyllic. And there's like the forest floor is just covered with this amazing, like neon green moss and ferns everywhere. So we got there on a Sunday afternoon and at that point you know walking was really difficult and he had just sat in the car for three hours so my husband actually like piggybacked him into the house which was just like a really beautiful act of love I thought (laughs) Um, it is I love these moments I had to do that for my husband and I like wrapped one of his legs in the snow and he was like come on (laughs) (laughs) yeah so there I am like carrying Fern into the house who's like 13 months, and then my husband is carrying my dad into the house. Esme's brother arrives at Deer Isle that night. Esme sleeps in bed with her dad to help take care of him. She reads to him from a book of poetry by Edna St. Vincent Millay, a poet from Maine who Ron loved. She flips the book open, and of every poem that it could have been, she's open to a poem called The Suicide. Curse thee, life. I will live with thee no more. Thou hast mocked me, starved me, beat my body sore. And all for a pledge that was not pledged by me. I've kissed thy crust and eaten sparingly, that I might eat again, and met thy sneers with deprecations, and thy blows with tears. I, from thy gutted lash, glad crawled away, as if spent passion were a holiday. And now I go nor threat nor easy vow of tardiness can avail thee now, with me whence fear and faith alike are flown. Lonely I came, and I depart alone, and know not where nor unto whom I go, but that thou canst not follow me, I know. This death is not a suicide, but those words, the image of Ron departing alone, Esme unable to follow. They fit this moment. That she opened the book to this poem is like a little wink from the universe. So I read that poem to him, and then eventually we we fell asleep that night, and I remember waking up in the morning, and my dad had installed this skylight right above his bed. And I opened my eyes, and he was already awake, and... His eyes were trained up at the skylight. And he said, treat thoughts like clouds, just watch them pass by. Watch them pass by. Be as present as you can. That's what they do. In the morning, they start what could be the last day of Ron's life. My brother and my husband and my daughter and I kind of all sat around him in the living room And we went through old photos. We had gotten these like big storage boxes up from the basement. And we, you know, were reminiscing and asking him questions about them. And we found this photo of his father from the 1940s. And my dad hadn't seen that photo in ages. And he just was so happy to see it. And then at one point we came across these these fading negatives of this negative, this naked woman. (laughs) Dad, what the hell are these? So that was hilarious. And we all laughed. And then as the day kind of kept progressing, like one of the rules essentially of the medication is like, you have to take it on empty stomach. And my dad kept wanting to eat and he kept asking for snacks. I would keep giving him snacks. Like 
hard pretzels and a chocolate protein bar and some cheese with crackers. And, and it was this really weird day where like we were cherishing every single moment because we knew we wouldn't have much time left with him. But it was also like kind of maddening in a way because we just didn't know what was going on. Like we didn't know where his head was at. Like, is today actually going to be the day? Like, but you're eating, like you can't, it was just like, it was just really, it was just a really weird place to be in. For dinner, Ron has his favorite meal, pasta with clams that the neighbors dug up that morning. We just sat around the table and like we drank good wine and we laughed and it was just this really surreal but wonderful moment. And, you know, I felt like finally, you know, he had been so anxious and so betrayed by his body and so downtrodden by having endured this condition for so long. And in that moment, like I felt like we had our dad back, like we had, we were laughing and like the specter of death was like definitely hanging over us. but we could laugh and like live in the moment because he no longer feared, you know, the idea that he might die this awful prolonged death. We could just enjoy that moment. And it was like, it was incredible. So that night was Monday night. And again, I slept beside him in his bed and we read poetry that night. And I remember massaging his calves and his quads and his feet. He said they felt very heavy at the time. Like his limbs felt very heavy by that point and he could, you know, barely move his legs at that point. So I massaged him and, you know, he thanked me at one point for helping him. And I just was like, dad, like, I don't even know if I said this. I really hope I did, but I was just the one that felt thankful. Like it, he didn't need to thank me at that point. Like I was so thankful that he wanted me at his side at that time. Tuesday arrives. A home health aide comes to bathe Ron and get him ready. He was, like, intent on being freshly shaved every day, wearing real pants, like, no sweatpants. And so he got washed up, and I remember the home health aide just, like, casually commenting that I looked so much like my dad. It was so clear that I was his daughter, and that was, like, such a... That just made me so happy to hear. They spend the day reading poetry, looking at pictures, just being together. And then at about 4 p.m. that day, my dad was just like, all right. I mean, I don't think he said it this bluntly, but it was just like, there's no more delaying the inevitable. Like, this is the time. We're going to do it. The process starts with an anti-nausea medication, which Ron takes before going to sit out on the porch until it starts to rain. And so we took him back inside, and he wanted us to move a framed black and white photo of his mom to atop the wood stove. And so we moved it there and he kind of talked about how he'd hoped he'd see her. And he told us that he'd miss not skiing with us again. And then the others stepped away at one point and he, it was like a confession almost like he turned to me and he said he wouldn't be doing this if he felt like he had any other choice. And, you know, it felt like an apology. And I just told him I understood. Esme and her brother mix the first drug, and their father gulps it down. 30 minutes later, it's time for the second drug, the sedative that will put him to sleep as the first drug eventually stops his heart. He, again, just, like, gulped it down, and he closed his eyes within 
minutes, if not less, like it was pretty quick. And then for a while, it just looked like he was napping. And he snored and he was sitting in his chair. And it was kind of like he had napped in that chair a hundred times. You know, it just almost looked like he was just napping there again. But obviously he wasn't. And then it took about three hours for his heart to finally give out. Brother and my husband and I just sat around just, you know, bawling and just sitting there with the body and I'm just holding his hand and listening to music and crying. And at one point in all the final moments, my husband like kind of like screamed through tears, like there is no better way to go than this or just something to that effect. And it was true. Like, I mean, there is such thing as a good death and it was what my dad had. Like he was at home in this place that he loved in this piece of Maine he loved, in this house that he made into a home. He was surrounded by those of us he loved and those of us who loved him. We were playing music. We were taking shots of whiskey during this whole time too. And it was on his own terms. Like he could decide the when and the how. I mean, my dad was a control freak, definitely. Um, And ALS is such an awful disease. and he didn't want to die like that. He didn't want to let kind of ALS give him this awful death, awful, prolonged, painful death that he had no control over. And so, you know, as awful and as traumatic and like profoundly sad as the idea of him dying is and was in the moment, my dad had arguably the best possible death you could have. And it was beautiful because it was on his own terms. We've talked about this topic one other time on this podcast. It's episode 11 called The Ending Matters. And I talked to the widower of Brittany Menard, who died using death with dignity legislation in Oregon, I believe the same week that my husband Aaron died of brain cancer in a more awful and painful way. You can listen to that episode if you want to get a little deeper into the politics and policy of the issue. Ron Prez got to decide how he wanted to die. In the same way that we all want to control our lives, he was given the chance to control his death. But like for a lot of us, like we should be in control of our lives. And then when it becomes to our deaths, that is so less often the case. I mean, the control over our deaths gets ceded to doctors who work within this you know, medical care system that has all these tools to prolong our lives instead of let it end. And our families don't want us to go. And, you know, so they keep us on life support or just, you know, pushing for more intervention. And so it's just the, this contrast between thinking that we should have control over our lives, but then depriving so many of us of that control over death is really fucked up. Esme and her family stayed in Deer Isle for six months after her dad died. In that time, Esme and her husband decided to have another baby. And I dreamt that he had died and was planning to take the drugs again soon, which was weird. But he had come back to life again for a little while. 
And I opened a box for some reason containing a new set of plates that he'd gotten us as a Christmas present, but he'd forgotten about. So he was apparently giving them to us over July 4th weekend. <laughs> and we did have these like really funny plates growing up. They were Edward Lear illustrations and they were really whimsical and they have funny sayings on them. And so these plates were kind of like a version of those plates that we had growing up. In that moment, after I opened up this Christmas gift that he had forgotten about, I got to tell him about the obituary that I had written for him. And right around the time his obituary came out, our local newspaper in Maine also did a story on him. And so I got to tell him that he was in the Portland Press Herald and they did this big story on him. And then most importantly, I got to tell him that I was pregnant with my second child. And immediately he responded by saying, by knowing that like my husband and I had purposely conceived around his birthday and that his spirit had infused the pregnancy. So I'm usually not like one to read too much into my dreams, but it just was a really nice thing to have happen. And I do feel like it makes me feel on some like, you know, strange level that he does know that he's got a second grandchild coming on the way. When we spoke to Esme, she was 38 weeks pregnant. She had a C-section scheduled for a few days later, so by the time you're hearing this, she's a mother of two little girls. I got pregnant right in the heart of, like, grieving my dad's death, and I didn't, like, think it through in this way. I was so focused on my dad's death and just on death in general, and then to have this kind of forced distraction of focusing on new life, like, has been really surprisingly wonderful too I've been really really grateful for that I've (laughs) I've said to my husband like it's quite the cycle of life in our house here in the past year my dad died we created new life and I've been trying to nurture it inside of me and then here I am about to give birth again so the cycle repeats itself mentioned that Esme is an investigative reporter. She's a beautiful writer. She wrote a piece called Death with Dignity, How I Helped My Dad Die. It's on Bloomberg. We've linked it in our show notes. Um, And we really suggest that you read it. It's a really, really lovely piece of writing. And we thank Esme for sharing her dad and her story with us. I'm Nora McNerney. This is Terrible Thanks for Asking. And our production team is Jacob Maldonado-Medina, who helped a lot on this episode. Good job, Jacob. Um, Marcel Malikibu, MVP, as always. Hannah Meacock-Ross, our everything, you know, real, just, just uh, head of the household. If we were filing taxes together, she'd file as head of household. I'd file as a dependent. Emotionally, emotionally dependent. Jordan Turgeon, I mean, what doesn't Jordan do? W- WDJD, what doesn't Jordan do? Let's figure it out. I don't know. Um, Phyllis Fletcher. This is one of the last episodes she worked on. We still miss her. She left. She left us. She left us. Should she leave us or did she go towards something better? Hard to say. 
Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson. Um, I suggest you look up his music. Absolutely beautiful. So many beautifully talented people and beautiful people work on this podcast, and it is quite appreciated. Quite. Much appreciated. Um, This podcast was recorded in my closet. Production help from my husband, Matthew, who took the children out of the home, out, away, so I could record. Also, this episode made me miss my dad. So if you have a dead dad, um, I feel ya. Shout out to all the dead dads out there, all the people with dead dads. Um, Okay, I think that wraps it up for us. We are a production of American Public Media. I think that's it. Okay, all right. Bye, guys. We'll see you soon.